0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. This episode is called The Bible's Perspective on human rights. The history of human rights is outlined in this episode with the protests that have emanated from the perceived abuse of them. The Bible's perspective shows that many of the real issues that the world has tried to solve and failed can only be put right when Jesus Christ reigns in the kingdom of God from earth and when he and his father are honoured and obeyed.
1: There was a protest in Melbourne against the Victorian pandemic bill. Kill the bill was the slogan, as well as many other not so complimentary ones for the Premier, Daniel Andrews. There was also protests in Sydney and the Gold Coast against vaccine mandates and the wearing of masks. And Of course, throughout the year, there's been many, many protests, many of them relating to COVID-19, but also other ones as well tonight we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about human rights, which of course all these protests in one way or another relate to. If we look at human rights, what are human rights? They've been defined as the inalienable fundamental rights to which a person is inherently entitled simply because he or she is a human being. So because we exist as humans we are supposed to have certain rights which all humans get. Before we look at the biblical perspective of this we're just going to trace at a very high level the development of human rights over time. Many people say that the first substantial document if you will concerning human rights is the Cyrus Cylinder, which was written in around the 6th century BC. The Cyrus Cylinder was caused to be written by a man called Cyrus the Great. He was the ruler of the Persian Empire in the 6th century BC. And he caused some laws to be written on this stone cylinder, which was discovered by archaeologists in the year 1879. Amongst the many laws written on this cylinder, there's some which give support for the return captives to their homelands, and others which give support for freedom of religion, including the return of images of the gods of their sacred centers, the captive sacred centers. To put this in context, Cyrus ruling over the Persian Empire overcame many other countries he overcame the existing empire of the day which is the Babylonians and they in their turn have of course overcome many countries and taken captives from various places and brought them to to Babylon one such example is the Jewish people who were taken captive from the land of Israel and brought as captives to Babylon to serve the king of Babylon there when Cyrus took over the Babylonian kingdom and made it the Persian kingdom, he made rules which said all those captives, or their descendants, could return to the land of Israel. They could rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they had freedom to worship the God of Israel in the way which the God of Israel had decreed. And so these are held up as significant steps to establish human rights human rights to return to the homeland, human rights for the freedom of religion. If you look in the biblical books of Second Chronicles and Ezra, you'll find references which align to the provisions which are on the cyrus cylinder as the Jews there returned to their homeland, rebuilt the temple and re-established right worship before their God. Well, Probably the next major document which we find, which is said to be a landmark human rights document, is the Magna Carta Libertatum, commonly known simply as the Magna Carta. It was created in England in AD 1215. The name Magna Carta Libertatum means Great Charter of Freedoms. It was agreed to by King John. It was drafted by Archbishop Stephen Langton, and the objective was to make peace between the unpopular king, King John, and a group of rebel barons. And the Magna Carta gave protection of church rights, protection for barons from illegal imprisonment, access to swift justice, and limitations on feudal payments to the crown. Neither side upheld the charter. In fact, King John broke his part in just six weeks. Well, he died the following year in 1216. And the document was revised several times in 1216, 1217, 1225, and then finally in 1297, there was a revision which became the final revision of the Magna Carta. The 1297 revision has just four surviving copies one of which is housed in, in Parliament House in Australia here in, in Canberra. Well, we roll on another 500 or so years and we come to the establishment of the USA and the creation of their constitution. The United States of America, of course, hold themselves up as the leaders of the free world. And certainly when they establish their constitution, freedoms and human rights were paramount in their mind. And they had a Bill of Rights which was incorporated into the Constitution of America. We've got an extract there from the Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So over time, human rights are now being crystallized into some key ideas. And staying with America, but coming down another almost 200 years, we come to one of the more famous presidents of America, Franklin Roosevelt. In 1941, he gave a very famous speech. It's in the top 20 famous speeches of the last century. It's known as the Four Freedoms speech. And the Four Freedoms, which... He declared were important as human rights, so the freedom of speech and expression, the freedom of individual worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And he gave that speech in 1941. Now sadly he passed away in the next few years, but his wife continued on his work. His wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, worked with the UN and was very active in the work which resulted in the document called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was adopted by the United Nations in 1948. And here she is holding the English copy of that particular document. It was produced in many, many languages, of course, and many, many countries signed up to that Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This declaration consists of 30 articles. I know that's a little small, and most likely those at the back will not be able to read that. But that's a, a summary of the 30 articles which make up this Declaration of Human Rights. The articles are things which we'd be quite familiar with. It's got the right to equality, freedom from slavery, right to social security, right to education, Right to a fair public hearing, and so it goes on. These are the rights and freedoms which make up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, let me see where we've come from over the last, say, handful of centuries. Human rights have certainly helped overcome a number of social problems which have plagued society. Human rights have helped overcome the problem of slavery, which was there in the early years in when America was being settled, for instance, not that long ago in terms of human history. Human rights have helped to overcome the problem of child labor. And that picture on the top right there was taken in 1908, where a young girl is pictured working in a cotton spinning factory. And the person who took the photo was having a tour of the factory, and every turn they bumped into another child, and the, the manager said, "Oh, this is so-and-so's sister or brother," or so forth." who just happened to be helping out that day. But the factory was full of children, underage children, laboring for jobs which they were not suited. Human rights have helped to overcome poverty and human rights have helped to overcome religious persecution. There's a diagram depicting what happened in the the Middle Ages. But of course, when we look at all of those problems, they're still very much existent in the world today. And so for all the efforts of the United Nations and various nations individually to overcome these social problems with various bills of human rights and declarations and so forth the problems still exist. If we stand back and say "Well, what's the aim of human rights? The aim of human rights is to create a better world. Peaceful, fair and equal. Without poverty, famine, war, oppression or endemic plague. That sounds exceedingly noble. All of us would like to live in a world which boasted those things. Peace, fairness, equality, elimination of poverty, famine and war and oppression, and the elimination of an endemic plague. They pay billions for that right now. In fact, they're paying billions and still not got it. But it's one of our human rights, supposedly. Well, when we consider that this is the aim of human rights, surely the Bible would reinforce these human rights, and therefore would not all Christians throw their full weight behind the human rights movement to establish such a world as this? We find that human rights leads to protests. And here's some protests which have happened in the course of the last 12 months protests for climate, protests around race, protests around health measures, protests around the cost of education, and there's many, many more reasons we could add to the list. And people protest when they feel that their human rights have been eroded or denied. They want to send a message to the government. They want to tell the government that the government is not ruling according to the to the declaration of human rights the universal declaration of human rights and so they want change change in the government change in the laws because of their at least perceived human rights <coughs> well what does the bible say about human rights and how we should respond to these matters. Well, firstly, let's look at how we should respond to governments and rulers. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation. In other words, God has put in place certain powers, people in positions of authority in the world. And for the most part, they rule in a respectful and proper manner. They rule for the good of the population. And what the Apostle Paul is telling the Romans is that they ought to obey... ...the laws of the land. They ought to obey, in their case, the laws of Rome under which they lived. Because to resist would be actually to go against the principles which God has established. The same author, the Apostle Paul, writes to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient... To be ready for every good work and the apostle peter writes submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him fear god honor the king so we could protest about wearing masks or some other aspect of the pandemic but if the government says we ought to wear masks then unless it contradicts the word of God itself, we ought to go along with what the government says. That's basically what the Apostle Paul is saying here uh, and the Apostle Peter. Not that, of course, masks were the issue in their day, but whatever the issue is, unless the, the decree from the government or the authorities contradicts the word of God, then we ought to obey what the government or the king or the authorities say. Well, let's let's come down a level, what about with our employer? How should we respond to our employer? Well, again, we're taking passages from the New Testament. And these passages which we're going to look at, the employers were masters and the employees were slaves. None of us are slaves today, where all of us would be a step up from the conditions of slavery. But still the principles which uh, the Apostle Paul applies are still relevant to how we should respond to our employers. He writes to the Ephesians, servants or slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So we ought to be obedient to our masters, our employers. Whatever their requests are, again, unless it contradicts directly the word of God, we ought to to, to submit to their request. Again, he writes to Titus, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. So clearly the Bible teaches that we ought to be in subjection to the rulers of the land as well as to our employers. So how do we respond when our human rights are wronged? For example, freedom of belief and worship. How do we respond? Well, this was very much a problem in the first century, and the Apostle Peter writes, "'This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God "'endure grief, suffering wrongfully. "'For what glory is it if, when ye are buffeted for your faults, "'you take it patiently?' But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. In other words, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, that is, his conscience, his worship, his service to his God, causes him to endure grief or suffering, the Apostle Peter says, then that's acceptable with God. No good protesting in the street because the government punished you for worshipping God. That's acceptable with God, says Peter. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you so to suffer for your religious beliefs is not a new thing not in the Lord Jesus Christ day it happened to the prophets many centuries before and it's happened to faithful believers in the centuries since are human rights wronged Well, yes, but that's acceptable with God in this day and age. Of course, the story's not finished yet, so bear with me. Let's take another example. How to respond when our human rights are wronged. One of the human rights is that there will be freedom from slavery. We've already said that slavery was quite an issue in the first century does Christ, do the apostles advocate that there's an uprising against slavery well no again the apostle Peter says servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good masters and the gentle masters but also to the unjust masters so when your employer goes beyond what's reasonable and mistreats you Paul says, continue to be subject to that employer. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm fully aware that there are options you can take. Today, if you are with an employer who is making life very difficult, you have an option to resign and to go and seek another job. That's an appropriate course, as opposed to protesting against your employer, for example. So then, if the aim of human rights is fundamentally good, which is what we saw at the beginning, the aim is to create a, a better world, overcoming many of the social issues, and therefore we might be tempted to think that, well, we should get on board, how does the Bible treat these issues? Is it silent on these issues? Does it say we should ignore these issues? What's the Bible's advice? Well, it's a matter of rights versus responsibilities. The world promotes human rights. It's all about stand for your rights, ob- achieve your rights, obtain your rights. Let's take a few examples, common examples, in this day and age. So the mistreatment of wives all too common how does the bible treat this as a matter of rights or responsibilities well the apostle paul in ephesians treats it as a responsibility and he exhorts husbands to address the issue husbands love your wives and what's the measure the measure is Christ himself, even as Christ loved the ecclesia, or the believers, and gave himself for it. So, if there's a problem of a wife being mistreated, Paul says, Husband, love your wife. To what extent? To the same extent as the Lord Jesus Christ loved the ecclesia, the body of believers. And how, what was the extent of his love? Well, he gave himself for it, his life for it. So it's a matter of responsibility, a responsibility which ought to be taken very seriously. What about the mistreatment of children? Well, a little later in the same passage, Paul goes on and says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So again, it's a very serious responsibility that Paul addresses here. And the third one, of course, the mistreatment of servants. Masters, says Paul, forbearing threatening to slaves, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. So again, he puts the responsibility on the masters to address this problem. Now, I can hear the silent protests already, you might say. It's all very fine to take the problem to the perpetrator. Yes, of course. But the the issue that Paul is is emphasising here is take responsibility. And where people do not, then those around them need to help bring them to this responsibility and ensure that the wives, the children, the servants or whoever it may be are not mistreated at the hands of someone more powerful than the person. Like now to pivot slightly and talk about citizenship. Probably most of us in this hall are citizens of Australia and normally speaking that that would mean that we have access to certain privileges, rights if you will, which come with being a citizen of Australia. But we find that believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ actually have a different citizenship, according to the Bible. Yes, on paper, technically, we're still citizens of Australia. But our real citizenship in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Christ, and it should be in our own eyes, is a different citizenship as explained by the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Philippians. For our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship is in heaven. So the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended to heaven and our citizenship is, as it were, with him in heaven. And he's going to return and re-establish God's kingdom on earth. And so our citizenship doesn't actually really belong to Australia. It belongs to a future time, a future kingdom in which the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we are waiting, will return and reign in that kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew 18, sorry, John 18 and verse 36, he answers people who are persecuting him He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, I don't actually belong to this age, to this kingdom. I belong to a kingdom still coming. And the privileges that I will receive. Belong to that future kingdom. So he's not appealing for any rights and privileges as he faced his persecutors. Well, if we were, as we are, citizens of Australia, and if we went to, say, China, we probably wouldn't expect too many privileges and rights awarded to us in China. Because we're not citizens of China, we're citizens of Australia. Well, the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ are here saying actually, the citizenship of true believers is not of Australia, China, America, UK, pick your country. The citizenship of Christ's followers is actually in the kingdom of God still to come. And so the privileges of that kingdom are still future when the kingdom will be established. We shouldn't therefore expect to receive the rights and privileges that are available to us in whatever country we belong. Now, there are privileges which come with being an Australian or an American or a Chinese person in your homeland. And it's fine to go to school, for example, which is one of the privileges of being in Australia. But it's also important that we realise that these are not rights but privileges and that the kingdom which believers really belong to is a kingdom yet to be established. Now, regarding that kingdom to be established, there is a psalm, Psalm 72, I'm going to take several extracts from it tonight. I'd encourage you to go home and read the psalm from start to finish. It's all about the kingdom of God. We're going to look at it from two perspectives tonight. It's about the kingdom of God, and the king, of course, will be his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to reign for a duration of a thousand years. It's a kingdom which we believe is going to be set up on earth very soon. The extracts I've taken here Point out things which will be done in that kingdom under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will answer many of the issues which human rights laws have tried to iron out today. So in verse 2, He will judge thy poor with righteousness and thy poor with justice. Sorry, He will judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with justice. Verse 3, The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. Mountains and hills are often used in a figurative way for for strong nations and and lesser nations. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 4, he will judge the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. Verse 7, in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon be no more. Verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he crieth, and the poor that hath no helper. Verse 14, he will redeem their soul from oppression and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Verse 16, there shall be an abundance of grain in the earth upon the top of the mountains, and the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. Now you can see I've put in bold some of the the things there which really answer many of the things which are addressed by human rights laws today. If we superimpose on that the numbers of the articles in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that's just a quick glance at the 30 or so articles. And we put some of them there. We could probably put others there as well. We can see that in the kingdom of God, many of the issues, real issues, which are in existence today, which Human rights have tried to solve and failed miserably. They will be solved under the righteous reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, regarding all these issues which affect humans, whether it's poverty, whether it's lack of peace, whether it's oppression, oppression of children, oppression of the needy, whether it's lack of food violence when we come to the king of god we see quite clearly that humans will be looked after the things which the human rights groups today try to solve and fail the lord jesus christ he will provide an answer they humans will be looked after but when you took part of psalm 72 there's other verses in psalm 72 for example, verse 5, they shall fear thee while the sun endureth, and so long as the moon throughout all generations. He, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall render tribute, the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, before the Lord Jesus Christ. All nations Shall serve him, and they shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, and men shall pray for him continually, they shall bless him all the day long. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and Amen. So there's another selection of verses from the same psalm a psalm dealing with the kingdom of God and what it will be like under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ these particular verses emphasize the worship of God and of Christ the reverence which both God and Christ will be held from the entire population of the globe kings shall fall down before Christ and worship him nations shall serve him Men shall pray for their king, Christ. They shall pray to God for him. shall bless him all the day. They're going to bring tribute, wealth, offerings to the king. They're going to fear both the king and his God. In the last two verses again. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who do- only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name, forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. And when Christ reigns on earth, the entire world will be filled with God's glory, as men and women throughout the world praise, honour, and glorify God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm ends, Amen and Amen. Amen means let it be. Let it be. Let it be. And so, not only in the kingdom of God will humans be looked after, in the kingdom of God, God and Christ will be honoured and obeyed. And the reality is, you can't have one. You can't have the human rights. You can't have, more to the point, all those social injustices and problems which exist in the world. You can't have them fixed without... God and Christ being honoured and obeyed. And so, if we want all the things which the human rights activists are asking for, then the Bible gives us the answer. The Bible tells us it's going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and reestablishes the kingdom on earth. So, the Bible's perspective on human rights. It's rather simple, really. Today, obey those in authority, even if it disadvantages you, unless it contradicts the commands of God. Take on the responsibility to do the right thing by others. And embrace the hope of a coming kingdom in which Christ will reign in righteousness. All social issues will be addressed and God will be revered and obeyed throughout the world. Thank you.